Almost 10 years ago, Jonathan Last, late of the Weekly Standard and currently editor of The Bulwark, published a book called What to Expect When No One's Expecting. The book examined declining fertility rates in America and around the world. Last called it a demographic disaster with far-reaching implications for all aspects of life, from healthcare to education to retirement. With the sudden and unexpected arrival of post-pandemic labor shortages, some are beginning to ask whether the future that Last described is finally arriving. A new study by Emsi, a labor market information firm that just a few weeks ago merged with Burning Glass, another job market analytics company, issued a report arguing that worker shortages we are seeing right now are only the first glimpse of a long-term challenge arising from having too few people to keep the wheels of the U.S. economy turning. I asked Ron Hetrick, the lead investigator for the MZ study, and his collaborator, Rob Sense, to join me for a conversation about their findings and some of its implications for jobs now and in the future. Ron Hetrick, Rob Sense, thanks for joining me on Hardly Working. Nice to be here. Thank you. So you guys have this new report, fascinating new report. I think it really helps come at some of the labor market things that we're seeing going on in the recovery from the pandemic in a different light and in a very helpful light. And you call it a sans-demic. What is a sans-demic? And why is MZ spending its time thinking about this problem? Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Brent. A sans-demic means without people. You know, so for the past year or so, we've been heavily inundated with the word pandemic, which means all people. And we think that there's another theme happening in the market as we've looked at the data, which describes a different phenomenon. So we wanted to sort of like use those terms together and describe it. And what brought us to that moment was when the economy struggles. So MZ is a labor market analytics firm. Our job is to look at the data, think about jobs, think about the connection between people and work all the time. So economy good, economy bad, that's what we do. And when the economy goes bad, we typically see some key things happen, right? A lot of people go to community colleges and enroll. A lot of people go to our various public systems like the workforce system and look for help. A lot of people apply. So a thousand people apply to one job and the employer is just overwhelmed with applicants. So April through September happened last year. And we didn't see some of those classic things happening. We saw the, the opposite, right? We saw employers who were struggling in January and February to hire people also still struggle to hire people. We saw huge numbers of job postings from areas like healthcare and logistics and business roles and technology roles. So we didn't see a lot of the, the classic behavior. And it made us start to think, well, we need to explain this from a labor market position, what's going on. Yeah. I want to expand on that just a little bit as well as as we were watching these things happen, our own clients were getting in touch with us and saying, can you explain kind of what's happening out here? And we're not finding anybody. And at that time, I hadn't really put much thought into it, but I wrote a piece towards the end of the third, well, I guess it was the beginning of the fourth quarter last year, things that I had started to notice. So I used to work at the Bureau of Labor Statistics and I was going back through some of those data sets and noticing some really interesting phenomena. But you know, thinking about where we were, and then how do we end up at this paper, this sandstemic, this demographic drought? Well, if you, this is what people really weren't thinking about, which is the month before we went into COVID lockdowns and the, and the shutdowns, the U.S. had posted its lowest non-wartime unemployment rate in history, you know, 3.5% in February of 2020. And we were starting to think about while we had these issues of this, you know, unemployment goes shooting up, but yet people still can't find workers. And you find people longing for the days of when it was better. And yet the reality was it was really horrible before things, you know, kind of spiraled out of control. So, yes, we exacerbated some issues largely because of some factors I talked about last year. A lot of people thinking they were going to get their jobs back, you know, stay at home mothers couldn't, you know, go back to the job because of uh, virtual schooling, all of these things, which we explained in that paper. But the reality was we had been hemorrhaging workers for a long, long time, and especially the boomers, which I had been following for about 10 years. And I would do these presentations where I'd show this wave, which was the boomer population coming through society. And I was like, you know, God help us if that wave ever comes down in the retirement side, because we don't have the people behind them. 
And what COVID did was it took a long-term trend and it just slammed the accelerator pedal down. And we just really got this effect really quickly. Well, I mean, first of all, I just want to say that, you know, you're talking about, well, things were terrible before the pandemic and now they're even worse. And that kind of goes to the idea of economics being the dismal science. You know, it's always bad news. You know, there's never any good economic news. It's, it's or at least every bit of news has a plus and a minus next to it. So anyway, it wasn't great and now it's worse. But are you suggesting then that this is primarily driven by early retirements by boomers or how does that work? Yeah, as we explained in the paper, it's a combination of a lot of factors that were already taking place. Absolutely, the retirements play a, a part of it, but you have to understand the retirements play a part of it because of just this enormous workforce that you had. And what we talk about in the paper is we all didn't understand that what we were experiencing during our lifetimes was this glut of workers that had entered the labor force. People just assumed when you put a posting up for a job, a lot of people applied for it because there was a lot of people in the labor force. And now you have that boomer population leaving the labor force. Now, what happens there is you have this departing population. And what we talk about in the paper is their retirement rate doubled. Like it, we know we lost a significant amount of people. But what you also have is, you know, let's take away the COVID effect things. Let's take away, you know, whether, you know, the incentives to not work, anything like that. Let's take that conversation out and let's just talk about we had been watching labor force participation rates amongst prime age people, primarily men, had been declining for a very long period of time. But we had really started to see an acceleration in recent years. So you have a population that's leaving that loves to work and wants to work full time and wants to work a lot of hours being replaced by a population that's increasingly less interested in working, period. Like they're dropping out of the labor force. So they're not employed or unemployed. They're just out of the labor force. And the ones that are in the labor force increasingly doing part-time work or just semi-engaging in work at a period of time. You know, we like to call it a gig economy, but it's really, that's an insidious term for I'm going to engage with work when I feel like working. That mindset combined with this exit in the, in the baby boomer population really caused problems. Okay. So it's been perplexing to kind of watch the response to the April employment report because everybody's trying to figure out why, you know, what's the reason why this, why are we having trouble as this, you know, essentially, as I wrote about it this week, you know, sort of a fully caffeinated American economy. And yet employers are scrambling, trying to find workers. And so everybody's reaching for their favorite explanation for this phenomenon, right? They're reaching for, well, it's the schools and childcare not being available. It's the unemployment insurance problem, overly generous benefits, it's the stimulus. People have got, you know, sort of fattened their bank accounts and don't necessarily feel any urgency. It's the fact that the labor market is super tight anyway, you know, in terms of the number of workers per opening. I'm particularly interested in what your take is on that unemployment insurance angle. Why isn't this just a product of the federal government handing out too much money to too many people? It's a complicated question. I want to let's let's take a step back and let's look at the employment numbers kind of before where we were and like where we are now. So if we look at how many people we need to get back to the amount of employees, it was 158 million people employed according to the household survey before the, the pandemic hit. So you need about seven and a half million people to get back to that number. However, if you look at the labor force, we only need four and a half million people to get back to the amount of people to equalize where we were in the labor force before this thing got started. So you immediately sit there and you go, okay, there's a gap of three and a half million people there. We have a problem right away with that. You know, We have a lot more jobs than we have people in this labor force. So there's part of how we're feeling this, this boomer effect are those people that have just disappeared? But to kind of let's step towards let's step towards the the checks aspect of this. If you have this kind of long term trend on a declining labor force participation rate, and there are things that we talk about in the paper, and we there's shortened versions of different videos we do and everything. But in the paper, I really kind of grind through the data to say there is overwhelming evidence that this population that we really need to work is not working. So they're they're at home still, they're living with their parents, they're delaying having children, getting married, buying homes, they're delaying a lot of economic things that 
would cause you to want to work full time. You know, in the old in the old days, you worked to survive, so you needed to buy a house or you needed to have a family. But they've delayed all of those things, and the economy was always built on this. This would always happen, but it's not happening. So what you have is any incentive that would cause people to not want to work in an environment where they're already leaning towards that is a double whammy. And I think what happened in this particular case, and I'm kind of tweet-stormed about this, is that when we did the benefits, increasing the benefits, noble as it was in the beginning, was unfortunately combined with not requiring people to provide evidence that they were looking for a job. And that was always the, the, the main underpinning of you know, what drives you know, these unemployment things. So as you give people benefits, but you're like, look, I want to make sure you're looking for work. So we know that they aren't because job openings, we look at the job openings number in BLS, are now at all-time historically high records, 8.1 million. We literally, I mean, just millions and millions and millions of job openings, and yet you still have around 3 million people still on unemployment above your normal level before the pandemic hit. So how can you have this incredibly high job openings number and still have this number you know, collecting unemployment? And the reason is because they're not going in and saying, are you looking for a job? A lot of states are starting to say, well, we're going to cut the benefits part. We're not going to give as much lucrative benefits. But until you combine it with, we need evidence, we need proof that you're actually looking for a job. This is no way this is going to unravel itself on its own. And I think you'll see states start to do it. I know I, I live in Florida. They've said starting May 30th, they're going to start requiring you to provide proof of job search. I think once the bigger states you know, start to announce that. If you look at the states that have said we're going to, you know, stop the benefits, they're all fairly small. There are a couple of large states there, but like the Californians and New Yorks are not in that camp. And yet they represent 30 to 40% of all pandemic unemployment claims. So you need to have those states kind of driving this. Hey, look, we need you to prove to me that you, you need to have these benefits. And we're just not seeing that kind of behavior being pushed. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that President Biden has also begun to at least clear his throat on this question and say, look, if there's a job available, you need to take it. You know, people need to go back to work if, they, if there's an opportunity for work. I think everybody's reading the tea leaves here politically. We need to start insisting in the post-COVID environment that people find, you know, if they can find employment, they go ahead and find it. But so put these two things together for me. You're talking about a sandemic where we just don't have enough people. And we've got this overhang from COVID with these unemployment benefits, which may be discouraging. In your mind, if you if you eliminate that disincentive to work, what does the long-term problem look like? Because this is the thing that I don't think people understand about where things are going. Yeah, so this is, I mean, this is exactly the important moment of this whole thing because we, the major question we get as a labor market analytics group is how has the pandemic changed life forever? And we keep looking at that and going, well, pandemics and recessions are kind of blips. They, they come and go. But what Ron and I have been observing is we accelerated ourselves into another trend that almost nobody has been paying attention to, or at least enough serious attention. Now, I, I think William Frey at Brookings has been. I think some of your colleagues at AEI have, Brent. I think other authors like Nathan Graw has been paying attention to this in higher education. And it's the effect of having that 76 million. This happened right in the moment that 76 million was exiting the market. So it sped it up. It happened right in the moment where we saw male labor force participation rate diving and men opting for part-time work. It sped that up. And then the one final thing it sped up was birth rate decline. So we had the lowest birth rate we've ever seen in the United States, and it sped that up. The pandemic stuff's going to go away. The unemployment insurance stuff's going to go away, which is good. And so people will sort of go back to normal on that. But there, there's this new reality that was sort of sneaking in that we like kind of, you know, if we're in a bus, we just drove right off a cliff. We weren't super aware of it. We sped towards, we were going 35 miles per hour and now we're going 70 miles per hour right at it. And it's those things that are more of like a hundred year cycle that this is going to define our workforce and labor conversations as long as we can see it. 
Yeah, I mean, it just seems though to me that we had some acceleration in people leaving the job market. I'd like you to talk a little bit about what you've seen the impact on women on this. We, we've gotten used to kind of thinking about men and their pro, their labor market issues. So we've seen some of that acceleration. What's to prevent that from snapping back, though? What's why wouldn't some of those workers either reconsider or how much of it is permanent? How much of it is an effect of the pandemic that will reverse itself? So I think there's a couple of things here. One of the things that I talk about in in the article, and especially in the middle, is that there are certain elements here, you know, like opioid addiction or you know, deaths around that. The trends are not favorable. We know that we saw in certain areas of the country just outrageous large spikes in opioid overdoses and things. Those elements are have been here are not going to go away. I think anytime soon. It's evolved, you know, through the synthetics, fentanyl, and everything like that. This has been decimating, you know, middle America manufacturing populations for a long, long time. So that's not going away. This transference of wealth, which was a, a big element of this article that, you know, I had been looking at this for a long, long time. And I, I go into great detail about this massive boom in household wealth changed the game. And we talk in there about, and this was, this was actually research, I believe had been done by Fidelity about this $76 trillion being inherited being going to the millennials eventually, and this would make them the richest generation in the history of the world. And that is, you know, this transference is going to occur no matter what. I mean, expecting that boomers are all of a sudden going to go out and spend all of that wealth, and it's not going to transfer, I think is incredibly naive. It is, it's in the process of being transferred right now. I mean, if you think about the oldest element of the baby boomer population, we know it's already occurring. It's it's hard. I know it's going to be hard for people to make that leap to. So you're saying that, you know, the living at home thing is, you know, this is this wealth thing is, is that's what's causing all this. But that's what we're hoping that you see in the research is there's definitely been an attitude change about work. And it's really easy to say, well, that's because this generation values balance more than the previous previous generation did. They value it because they can do it. If you couldn't do it, you wouldn't value it. And I, I think there's a naivety about well, we've changed as a society because people value different things. It's no, you do what you have to do to survive. And we just simply don't have to do the things that we did. Is that a positive or a negative? All I'm saying is there's an effect on the labor force. And I think that those elements are absolutely here to stay. I just want to linger on that number that you just, <laughs> that you just used, the amount of wealth being transferred. I thought the article said 68. I think, I think it's, just, it's 68. Sorry. And that is, yeah, I drew yeah. that number. So anyway, report says 68 trillion. Yeah, you're right. It's a lot. Very different of, than 76. Yeah. Yeah. It, <laughs> you know, it's, I said to, as I was talking about this with some friends over the weekend, I was like, I didn't even know there was $68 trillion in the United States. I mean, I, I had never stopped to contemplate how much accumulated household wealth or wealth period there is in the United States. But I mean, that is a fantastically high number. Where did it come from? So in the paper, I talk, this is an incredible thing. And what I love about studying the boomer generation is that you don't have to reach or stretch. There's no, I'm going to take a guess. Let me see. I'm betting that this happened. It, it actually took place right in front of our eyes. For the first time in history, history, you had, you know, women entered the labor force in the early 1970s from the boomer generation, and they were not only entering the labor force, but they were educated, taking jobs, you know, relatively close in pay to their spouses. And then you have partner spouses going through their entire careers, generating this income, wealth, this wealth. But you have to understand the jobs were way better at this particular time as well. I mean, technology was advancing. Think about the 80s. I mean, you know, I grew up through the 80s and we all know about the, the fast cars and the big houses and everything like that. The reason that was going on is because you had these dual income couples at the prime of their earnings years, just really, really generating wealth through the 80s and 90s. And that, you know, you go into the 2000s, now they're, you know, 30, 40 years of generating that wealth. And we had never seen anything like that. We were a much simpler society before, you know, technology exploded in the 80s, and particularly the 90s when the internet came in. So it was just this insane, perfect storm of education, technology, and a population that embraced both kidding at the exact same time to generate monumental wealth. Right there, Brent, that's simple math, right? Because the average baby boomer grew up in a household of four kids. And what, what did the baby boomer kids experience? You're 18 or 19, what do your parents do? 
kick you out of the house, go get a job, right? And so they did go get jobs and they got married and then both spouses worked. And what did they do? They only had 1.8 kids. So they grew up in a household of four. They got kicked out and had to work. They generated $68 trillion. And then they had about half as many in terms of population. So that's simple. That's just simple math. The 28-year-old didn't get kicked out of the house. And that's what we found in the study. Some staggering number of especially men between 25 and 34, more men what is it? Living with their parents than with the spouse. Then, you know, since 1880, which let's just say since ever. Yeah. And that's that. I mean, and that right there. So if you put unemployment benefits and parent wealth together, that's the help wanted ad you're seeing on the corner at every single store right now. That's those people who are like, I'm getting, I can get money from the government or I can get money from mom and dad, or in a lot of cases, grandma and grandpa. Yeah. Yeah. Or, Frankly, if I'm living at home and all of my needs are being met there, what other needs do I have? If I define those needs very narrowly, which is I just, you know, I need money for gas and ordering from DoorDash or whatever. And there is a tremendous amount of, you know, sort of pressure on people. I just, again, I was thinking about this. I had a Twitter exchange with somebody over the weekend. Well, he's up in New York, but we were talking about the question he was asking was when you were, when you were coming up, as a teenager, who were the popular kids? And he was insisting that that was all to do with money. Like the families who had money, their kids were the popular kids because they could afford to do a bunch of stuff that the rest of us couldn't. In general. Yeah. But again, I came up in the, you know, in the 1970s, in the late 60s and and 1970s. And actually, there were no rich families. I mean, that that's my recollection is that the, the gaps between families were just not, mm-hmm. not that pronounced. There wasn't that much money at that time. It was the 80s when, you know, we had the Reagan revolution and lower tax rates and go-go economy. And, and all of a sudden, these fabulous fortunes are being made and not just the really big ones, but the sort of the middle class fortunes, you know, that people were acquiring lots of property and houses. And so anyway, I I just think there's just been such a, you know, an unappreciated transformation of American society, just in terms of wealth, that it's not the same country that it was back then. I don't know if either of you want to respond to that. I just want to say, if you looked at our clothes in the 70s, it was clear no one had money. So (laughs) (laughs) there's a part of me, when I first started speaking on this, I felt that what I was doing was touching a really political hotball subject. And sometimes when I get up and speak, I'd say it and I'd just kind of wait for the for the outcry. And what I found, Brett, was that after I would finish speaking, I speak to a lot of manufacturing trade associations, I would get off the stage and there'd be a break and I'd have all these, you know, CEOs coming over to me and they'd say, so you're saying I'm a part of the problem. I'm like, I I don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, well, my 28-year-old son is living with us right now. And I'm like, so is he working? And well, he's in between things. He kind of considered if he wants to go back to college. And I look, I would look at him and go, yes, but you're not the problem. It's just what happens is you, that's the way statistics work. You get added to this person, added to this person. The next thing you know, you have a very large number. So it is, it is the frog boiling in water thing where you, you don't think of what you're doing as causing any harm because it's like, well, what does it harm me if my kid's living at home? How does that hurt anybody else? But it's this collective statistic that says, the problem is these people aren't engaging. And what we talk about in the paper is the video game thing that I talk about in the paper, you know, we're not out to go to war with the video game industry. I play video games. What we're trying to say is it's a symptom of the plague of disengagement that people are saying, look, rather than working part or full-time, I want to work part-time. And by the way, when people do a lot of part-time jobs, they have a tendency to take a number of weeks off in between jobs or not work at all, which we talk about in the paper. And it's like you you stop noticing that you're you know, son or daughter hasn't worked in a very long time because, like I said, they're in between things. And it all sounds innocent until you start to go, uh, who's going to take these jobs that we have? You know, who's, you're, you can't look at your neighbor and go, well, they're going to do it or they're going to do it. It's, it's not happening. Yeah. You really play up the video game thing in the report. Did you actually try to measure this or where does that come from? Fortunately, um, that study was done for us. MBER did that a couple of years ago. I love that study. And it was something that I, you know, really latched hold on because I was trying to figure out 
what was going on, looking, I remember at the time just looking, doing any research I could to show how are people able to work less hours? And in the trying to find out the how, I accidentally stumbled across the whys. And the and that's when it, it really all clicked in. It was just this incredibly perfect story that came together of it's a mindset shift. Because you don't have to do something, then you're able to do other things. And like I say, the video game thing to me is an evidence of it's this mindset shift of I don't need to do this, so I'm going to substitute it with something else. And I think we kind of, there's a bit of that that's a little tongue in cheek, but it is also meant, I think so many people will read this and they'll get to that part and it'll hit them right in their heart because they know that if it's not happening in their household, they know somebody that it is happening in their household. And I will tell you right now, I can't, there's no way I could even tell you the numbers of people that have come to me and said, oh, it's definitely happening in my household. Yeah, I had that experience yesterday when I tweeted out the piece that I wrote for the dispatch on your report. And I had one lady say, yep, that's exactly what's going on. My son doesn't think he needs to work. It's not just that he doesn't think he needs to work. It's that work is an interference with his gaming activities, online gaming activities, which is, is just kind of like mind boggling. I mean, again, I was I was raised by two parents of the Great Depression, and there was never really any question you know, about work. Everybody worked. Everybody had to work. I worked jobs that I hated in order to sort of meet the established expectation that you can't just sit home. Anyway, so it's it's really fascinating. So let me let me make a comment there too. I think the phenomenon is happening. One of the things that people will struggle with here is they try to isolate the phenomenon in one sector or category. We're seeing this phenomenon play out in every single category. So, like, you know, we're talking, you know, we're we're painting in broad strokes here, but like, what's happening in the low end employment areas, you know, the lower wage jobs? You have a a massive amount of unemployment benefits that pay you essentially the same amount of money that those jobs would. So that that's hurt that area. Also, the opioid issue. There are places in our country that depend, especially on that male labor. Uh, places like construction, logistics, manufacturing, in places like Indiana or West Virginia, where you have counties where the opioid situation is so bad that the labor force participation rate is down just because men especially are addicted to opioids. And then you have your rich suburban kids who are addicted to video games, enabled by essentially their parents to not work. You have lots of boomers leaving senior level management roles that are only 58 years old, and they're going to go move to name your nice warm place and get out of this craziness. And they're, you know, they're both of them are leaving senior level positions. So it's like every part of us is getting hit right now. And I think that's what's it's all of these things happening at the exact same moment. And then when we turn around and look at the situation, we go, Oh, by the way, you haven't replaced your population for 50 years. So that's, I think, what's so important for people to grasp in in this. We're not trying to depress people, but it's like when we talk to people, it's exactly that. Yeah, I've, I've seen that firsthand, but now it's time to look at it broadly. So we've talked quite a bit about men. Tell us about what you see in terms of female women's participation in the labor force. Let me just say there's two things on it. Rob made a point earlier that I I love that point of you have to always be careful about what's a blip and what's a trend. And I really find blips almost annoying as an economist. Anybody who's ever done data analysis, blips are so annoying because you have to go back and control for what will cause that blip because I got to smooth all of that data back out again. So we know that there was, I think at the high point, I I calculated 2.5 to 3 million women that were out of the labor force, most likely. If you look at them, they were prime age, these are women that were identified as, as head of household, you know, with children present. And we saw this massive increase in those not in the labor force. And we go, okay, it was about two and a half to three million. That started tapering down. It's still about a million and change and everything. So we know that that blip was largely due to this virtual schooling. Now, we have another problem here. We've seen men trending down. And a lot of the things, you know, there's that whole middle section of that paper that I wrote, which is on you know, this disappearance of men, because it is such a profound part of what a lot of people are trying to hire, you know, in these heavy, heavy jobs. And like I said, construction, manufacturing, the stuff that Rob pointed out, a lot of warehousing and everything. But what 
is also mentioned briefly in that paper is the labor force participation rate of prime age women has also been edging down. I think for that one, we can kind of reuse parts of that section because we do know that that women are just like men are, are being affected by this generational wealth. That's certainly not something, hey, I'm going to pass it on to my son. We're, we're all way beyond that kind of thinking now. We know that daughters as well are benefiting from that. And when you we, we talk about the delayed ages of marriage and having children, for men, it is much, it's much higher than women. But there's always going to be you know, that age disparity as well. For women, it is definitely a bit less. But you know, I think it's something where it's systemic. That bleed out has been a little bit smaller when it comes from the, from the women's side. It's just going to be an interesting thing to watch. It is, believe me, we can go back to the beginning of this whole conversation and talk about what drove this this first thing going into the 70s with this boomer population was this opportunity to define yourself in in a particular way. And boomer women really attacked that and really exploded in the professional side. And what we're saying now, like I say, if you talk to a lot of that next generation, that millennial generation, they express those things very differently. They never talk about accumulating wealth ever. I mean, if you if you ever catch that in a survey, please let me know. I've never seen them talk about, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to be a financial success. There's much more about, you know, self-realization and trying to change the world. And, you know, we're going to make an impact. And it's like, those are different goals. And there's not a lot of financial incentive tied to changing the world per se. You know, those are more moral and attitude shifts. So, you know, it definitely has an impact when you're relying on somebody to work a 50, 60 hour week, like people did easily, you know, in the 80s and 90s, those people are gone or they're retiring basically every day. So I've actually wondered if this isn't just in part a policy bias that we have in the United States where we insist that custodial parents work, that we have, we have policy welfare policy that says you you know if you are if you're a custodial parent and almost all of them are women you know you have to work whereas there is no sort of companion policy for the fathers of the of the children we say that they have to pay child support they don't have income they don't have to pay child support at any rate so this we've got a policy bias that has kept pressure especially at the low end of the wage market or labor market to keep those women in the workforce, but we don't have anything comparable among men. It's an interesting thought. One thing around that, and one of the problems is this fluidity of law. So there was a, a point about a year or two ago when, you know, there was this, there's this threshold number and we, there's, and I don't know where it sits right now, but I know there was a policy change at the time about, you know, for so many women, if they worked over a certain amount, let's say they were collecting welfare, they worked over a certain amount, and they made a certain amount, those benefits were completely cut off. So you literally switched a switch. You either were receiving benefits, or if you made a certain amount of money, you were not receiving. So there was never an incentive to go beyond that earnings level, which was a very, very small number. And people were deliberately saying, look, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going above this number. And so what happened was in one of these cases, they ended this policy, and we saw this massive increase and labor force participation occur in those target populations, those age groups. And thank goodness the government does break those things down. BLS does a really good job of breaking down age groups. And you just saw this huge increase. And that's at that time, what these people had to do in order to maintain the benefits was they had to say that they were looking for a job in order to continue on. So that you had this month where the numbers skyrocketed so they could all say they looked for a job and then they tapered right back down again. So you do see these kind of you know, effects. So when the government says, hey, now we're going to require you to do this, that's your evidence that there's something going on there. And, you know, I don't, I'm, that is not my area of specialty, but I will say, I, in general, I find the way, and this is not a political statement because I really think both parties don't really understand how the labor market works very well. I, I feel like there's not enough understanding as to how do you get the most out of people? How do you get them to engage? How do the incentives come alongside of people to, promote engagement in the workforce without punishment. And if ever you can do a calculation that says, if I make above a number, I'm going to lose this, then clearly not enough thought was put into it. And we can't do this anymore. The end of the paper, you know, I think there's some that Rob may have put in at the end. I don't know who added it, but I love it. It's that, you know, if there's anybody out there saying, I don't know if I, you know, I have value. And it's like, you've never had more value than you do now. The world has never needed anyone as much as they need everybody right now. And it's, I think sometimes the government stands in the way 
of that versus figuring out how best to to support it. Rob, did you want to add something to that or? Yeah, I mean, if there's a positive message to take away from all this, it's that if you're listening to this, if you are a young person or any person struggling to find their way into the market, wondering what to do, it's important that those people understand how valuable they actually are. You know, we're sitting here talking about labor shortages and are there people still struggling to find jobs? Yep. Are there still people not making the sort of wages they want to make? Yep. Are there people who aren't getting the skills that they really need? Yep. Well, guess what? We need to go to them and be like, you you have immense value just because you've an attitude that says, I do want to do something. And I think that's an opportunity for our country right now. It's something I've been thinking about because of the, you know, sort of the data from the Jolt survey, you know, job opportunity and turnover data that at the peak of the Great Recession, we had about six and a half workers looking for every job that was available in the economy. We sort of had about just before the pandemic, we were at about 0.9 workers. And now we're at 1.2 workers. That's still extremely tight. So how much of this do you think is, is there an effect in there of people just saying, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to look around and see what I can find that I don't have this pressure on me because I've got these stimulus payments and so on. And I'm going to look, I'm going to spend some time looking for the next thing rather than taking the first job in this tight labor market. It's For me, it's counterintuitive. We are, despite the fact that we've got 9 million people unemployed, we're in a very tight labor market. Yep. Yeah. It, it's that, you know, I talk about a uh, reason why I was actually tweeting about it, this whole thing, the idea of a beverage curve. Beverage curve looks at job openings and and these things. And I, I feel like when you when you really look at it, you can kind of see where a natural amount is. And I think to what Rob was saying before, we have 9.8 million. Before this downturn hit, we had 5.8 million. So you have this 4 million, you know, kind of bloat number, but yet we have way more job openings now than we had before this started. So I believe probably half, you know, somewhere around half, a little less than half of the people that are collecting unemployment are doing so. Yeah, they're either deliberately doing or they're they're just maybe they're the cousin Eddie and vacation where he's holding out for the management position. But that kind of, you know, it becomes obvious in numbers that the amount of opportunity that we have and the types, you know, as we look at these types of things, these people absolutely have opportunity. And I, you know, I mentioned earlier, as we start to take some of these, roll some of these programs back, start to drive accountability, which I still believe that's the biggest thing I've, I've been pleading and pleading to companies to put pressure on their, you know, Congress people, stop, first off, stop paying people not to work. And second off, start to see what we can do to work with state agencies to to make sure that people are looking for jobs. You know, that was always the key before. I think once you do it, you'll see probably 4 million of these people drop off, like pretty much within two to three months. I mean, this could happen by August. So fix those things. We'll get that bid in. Then we're going to go back to the normal incredible labor shortage that we had before. Always bad news. Like I said, no matter, <laughs> hey, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. I got a joke for you. Economists have correctly predicted 10 out of the past five recessions. An oldie, but a goodie, I think. Yeah, I love it. Um, yeah. Yes. Let me ask you this question, which is, if I set you in a room full of futurists and have them read your report and then respond to it, a number of them would say, you're, worried, you're totally worrying about the wrong problem because automation, artificial intelligence, I can see you shaking your head. And I'll let you explain your, your head shaking. But those things are actually leading us to a place where we, it's not a worker shortage, but a work shortage. Like there's not going to be enough stuff for people to do. And work will become some sort of like privilege for the most, the far right end of the bell curve, basically, in terms of cognitive skill. I want to hear you respond to those futurists who I've, who I've just summarized. Yeah, I'd say. Maybe, maybe we'll hit some Jetsons like reality or Star Trek, where we can just speak into some machine and it makes like the steak and potatoes that we want for lunch, right? But that getting to that moment requires an immense amount of labor. And so the companies that are doing automation, the companies that are messing around with it, are this, are they still posting jobs and needing a tremendous amount of labor? Yep. And what we're seeing also right now is it's the same 
the companies that have heavily invested in things like robotics keep investing in it. And they keep needing headcount. And then other things like the, the classic one we'd go to is like the Starbucks and McDonald's. Are they adding little kiosks where you can make your own order? Yes. Have they decreased their need for headcount? No. Yeah, the amount of job openings. I've been saying for years, automation should scare you because it's not going to come near as fast as you desperately need it to. You know, we talk in the paper about what you're seeing in the US. We're behind other nations that are actually ahead of us. Japan is just fading very, very quickly. Aging, really aging population. We're talking birth rates below one. That's just decimating. And, you know, Europe, Germany in particular, same exact thing. We're in it. The trajectory for all of these countries is incredible. China's one child policy and the imbalance of, of women to men is going to lead to a huge curve down. And there, the people that are left aren't interested in having children. So you have this, like, literally, it's sprinting away from us, this population, at a time that, you know, what Rob said, you know, robotics companies and all these people are like, we need people, you know, we can't even find labor to build these things. You know, engineers have to build this, people have to manufacture it, people have to maintain it, people have to have shops where they sell, like, they don't have anything to any infrastructure to even do any of those things. So they're their dreams sitting on blueprints in places that may take 30 years to, to make reality. I saw a quote the other day, I think we used it in a supplemental piece of material, that the kind of robots that, that can put a car together, that's still there. Yeah, we have those kind of things. But the idea of a collaborative robot that's intelligently really working with you, that is, they are like, that is so far away from reality of actually affecting a labor force at this point that it's, not, it's just, a, it's the dreams. It's the stuff we love to put on news shows at night. And we love to talk about this firm's doing this and this firm's doing that. Have you ever noticed that you see those things on these programs and it's 10 years later and you still don't see any of these machines out there or you see them in one or two places? Like they didn't take over. They just kind of but, went through their own thing. Were we also you remember, automated cars by now? It's yeah, like, do, you rem- do you remember Back to the Future 2? So Back to the Future 2 was shot in 1989 or, oh, is that or something. I can't remember. And what year was it set in? 2021. And so Michael J. Fox goes to 2021 and he, you know, he shows up, he's on a highway and all the cars are flying. Like, like he's on a, a highway just in the air and everything, you know, like the cars are just all flying. And that, that's what the people in the eighties thought that 2020s would be like. Right. Crazy. And here we are like bitching and moaning about, we, we have $68 trillion. And, you know, it's like to be that innovative, requires an immense amount of focus, people, and productivity. And we are sort of embroiled in all of our little like fights and squabbles. And, and, and Starbucks is like, yeah, we might have to close our store because we can't get enough labor. That's not productive. Like, we're not moving in any kind of like, progressive area in terms of technology. You know, we're struggling to actually maintain a position. And we keep seeing that slip away. The local grocery store just put in a whole bunch of kiosks and now you can do, you can check yourself out. What did they just do? Now they're struggling to hire three IT people, right? We didn't, we didn't automate somebody out. We just said, we created a new set of problems for which the only solution is find some more people to come fix those problems. Work. Yeah. I guess going back to my original point though, those just aren't any people. Those are people who yep. are highly skilled, high IQ. Meanwhile, the work shortage and the sort of unappealing in many ways, the nature of the work is at the bottom of the pay scale. Those jobs, some of those jobs that were kind of stepping stones to the middle are going away. You know, the clerks in the grocery store make good money. And now we've added IT people to take their place, but we haven't done anything to upskill the people who were operating the cash registers. So real quick on that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the largest by far company hiring in the world right now is an internet creation. So the internet was supposed to annihilate the job market. I mean, everybody was like, this is the end of banking jobs. It's the end of insurance jobs. It's the end of everything. And yet Amazon is the amount that they pay mid-level people, low-level people, everything are market setting high wage numbers for their categories. That's an internet creation. I think what you'll see with robotics are, you know, whether you're a tech, you know, a person working on a robot or doing these things, it's just such, you know, we talk about doomsday things, but to think that automation is going to decimate any particular part of the population comes without any proof of what 
technology advancement has done for us to get us to this point. Yeah, I mean, that's always that's always been true, right? I mean, ever since yep. the Luddites started smashing the, right. the the mills in the UK, that we've always and the machines enable us to create immensely more wealth and drive demand right. in the economy and so on and so forth. So that's been the, that's been the history. We're just good at I think CPG Gray did a really good piece on this. Will the robots come for our jobs? And I think he's one of he's made one of the more stellar points. He looked at the history of horses. So if you you think about the world population of horses was at its greatest right when the automobile showed up. And he kind of said, here's two horses standing on a field looking at a car and being like, well, they'll find something else for us to do. And ever since that time, the population of horses <laughs> has gone down. And so his his point was like, yeah, this robotics thing is different. I think that's totally legit. The thing that he didn't factor in in that argument is humans are remarkably good at creating yes. problems. So well, yes, that's certainly true. We created cars, but we also were able. So like we created video games, and then what, what happened because of that? We become, we created a generation of people who are addicted to them. What do we need to do? We need a generation of people who can figure out how to help people not be addicted to video games. What does that usually look like? Labor. Right. And that's always my response to this is that the value of human labor, as you guys are pointing out, is going up because there are still a lot of things. Most things, the things that people actually value most have very high human inputs to them. So I always tell people, stop worrying about becoming a coder here. Why don't you think about developing your your human skills? In fact, we just put out a volume today on non-cognitive skills that that makes this case. You know, what employers tell us constantly is not bring me more people with technical skills. It's bring me more people who can collaborate, bring me more people who can can communicate, bring me more people who can innovate. You know, all of those things are are what the labor market or the employers at least are saying that they need the most and we're not producing. Exit question on this. It's actually exit two questions. First of all, Put on your your magic glasses and look into the short and medium term future. What's your expectation around things like employment and inflation and some of the issues that are top of mind right now? And then further out, thinking about solutions. What is it that we can do aside from inventing a time machine and sending people back to have more babies than they had 20 years ago? What else can we do? Can I address the near term, Robin? I want you to take the yeah. part of that longer term. I just wanted to tell you one thing in the near term. Anybody who studies economics know that wages are sticky when they go up. And, you know, we're already, obviously, we're seeing the effects of inflation. I tweeted recently the graph of CPI and the most recent quarter was just insane, this massive spike. We knew that was going to happen. When you pay people who aren't generating GDP, but are only consuming it, you know, that's how you get inflation. It's nothing, no great secret there. Once again, that's a short-term thing. My, you know, I was in reading something recently about these small businesses, these mom and pop shops. They're the ones who really aren't able to go out and increase wages. I mean, it's a really difficult thing for these people to do. It takes them a lot longer. It's not that they can't, it just takes them a lot longer. So I think what you're going to see in the short run is I think you're going to see a lot of small businesses. If you can't run it by yourself, it's going to be almost impossible for you to hire people. I think you will continue to see problems there. It's not going to affect overall employment because, as you know, we are desperately in need of workers right now. The boomer retirements are real. We do not have the labor force that we had before. I think it's going to take us a while to get back to that number, but that number was already really poor. The longer these trends about labor force participation rates and prime age people going down, there is nothing sitting on the horizon that would change that. We haven't even transferred the wealth yet. And yet we're already feeling the effects of the transference now. So it is hard to see things. And I think you look at all that and you go, well, then we're all doomed. It's like, it's just going to change things. You know, people are going, I think it's a good thing. You know, people tell me when they're going to college, what's, what should I major? And I'm like, get the degree and just get out. Like you'll, you'll, be, you'll find something, you know, you're going to be wanted. I don't think that's the thing. It's going to be, how do we allocate labor? How can we get companies you know, I've already seen a lot of the places around me that used to do 24 hours, like the Wendy's and things like that. They're no longer doing nights. They, they, they're doing reduced hours. You know, is that a bad thing? Do you need, you know, a hamburger at three o'clock in the morning? You know, those are the kind of thoughts that we're going to change as a society to adapt to the amount of workers that we have and to assign a good or bad thing to that, I think is what gets dangerous. Will GDP ultimately shrink? 
Yes, it will. Will it because we're in a recession? No, it's because you don't have as many people consuming, so you don't need to produce as much. So the stock market in kind will not necessarily keep going up because there won't be companies increasingly generating revenue. They'll generate revenue for the population that they that exists. It's just a completely different mind shift. And hopefully, unlike with what just happened with COVID, we'll have some time to adapt to that because I don't feel like this is a negative thing. It's just a very different reality than what we're used to. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's, again, this piece that I wrote about your piece, a couple of the responses were like, you know, well, who says that we're all supposed to be working like this? You know, who says that everybody needs to, you know, be in there? And it's like, I'm not making a normative statement here, you know, and neither are you guys. You're not making a normative statement like what should or shouldn't be. But this is a new kind of evolving, emerging reality that we may have to face. and. It's all fine and good to say, well, we can do with less. Human beings are not actually built that way. At least in the short term, we don't like accepting less. In fact, we fear it more than gaining more. The thing that people would have to get used to, I think a good way to contextualize that statement is, you know, you can agree or disagree with the premise or be fine with results. But it's like our society has grown to a place where, in, again, when I talk about being, you know, fussy people, you you still hit that Amazon button. And if you live in like suburban DC or Raleigh, North Carolina or Seattle, you hit that button. Sometimes eight hours later, your toothbrush shows up on your front door, right? So as a society, that's become normative. And what we're saying here is, guess what? That is going to go away. The new normal. The new normal might look not as much like this. Well, well, so. people don't, I mean, we want so if you, if our society's grown used to it, that was enabled by an immense amount of willing labor. Correct. Hundreds of people touched that toothbrush and robots, and that whole process works so well because of the way the economy functions. And we're we're gonna we're basically even in the short term, in the midterm, we're gonna completely alter that, and it's gonna take a while for companies to figure out what that looks like for them. And so it means that means that cost and that that feeling is going to be passed on to the consumer. You show up at a hospital and you want five people to wait on you, that's going to change. Yeah, that's it's almost like trying to imagine if you were part of the World War II generation, trying to imagine the America that was going to be created by the demographic boom. You couldn't have imagined it. You couldn't have said, yeah, this is where we're going to be in 50 years. You know, it's because it's so unlike the America of today. I was just reading today that up until the post-war era, you know, 90% of the population lived east of the Mississippi. That's amazing. That's no longer true. And there was no California at that point, you know, that was, you know, the engine of the American economy. And taking that very long view of trying to imagine a world in which an acquaintance of mine wrote a book about this, what to expect when no one's expecting. That's the world that we're trying to envision as a world in which it's been radically altered by a demographic pulse that we can't quite put our, yeah. get our minds around. So I'd say like the, on the long term of this, too, I, I love that term, what to expect when no one's expecting that's That's fantastic. It means that the things, so the society that we've created, which we do truly like we we sort of take it for granted where we have you know 115 community colleges in the state of california we have businesses that you know just continue to put ads out for employment right that i think is the thing that people need to realize is going to change at some point within five years i think we go why do we have this many why do we have these many schools why do we have them like there's only 800 students enrolled in the school that used to serve 3,000 people. Why? Do and and to to a degree, that's already happening. You know, you've already got a crisis in higher ed with schools not being able to fill their their seats. If they can't fill their seats, they can't cover their costs. So that's that's already happening. You know, there's going to be a painful, I think, consolidation that it's, yep. it was already underway. Is yeah. it a bad thing? Is it an evolution? Like you're right. People aren't used to saying, well, less is okay. To a person who's dieting, less food is a great thing. To a, con- to a country that can't maintain its weight, it's going to have to go down. Like, it's, it's simply a necessity. 
And I don't want to say, you know, get old, you know, the strongest will survive. I think it's just, I think forward thinking people will look at it and go, you know, this doesn't make sense. And we're going to shut our doors down to help feed this over there. And our people will go work over there. That's happened in manufacturing. It's happened in other industries throughout our history that have had to evolve through situations. And I think you're going to, going to see it at a, a much larger scale. And it'll feel bad. But ultimately, in the end, it's going to be the right thing for the amount of population that you have. So it's ultimately a good thing. Yeah, you, you reap what you sow, right? We opted to focus on wealth. We opted to create that thing. And in one of the decisions, there's a cost benefit, right? I mean, that's even the, the thing about if you take a hardcore draconian response, what we know right now, well, that, that is an effect. So what was the effect of deciding to not have very many kids? That means 50 years later, there's not going to be as many people. Yeah. What does that mean? That means that you have to adjust to it. Long-term, it might mean this next generation that comes up, maybe that generation goes, you know what? We want to have kids. Like, Go look in the East. Like, Go look in places like Hong Kong or you know, Japan, where people have not done this for even longer than us. You see one little kid walking around, and you often see like grandma, grandpa, mom and dad, aunt, uncle, following that child around a phalanx <laughs> of protectors. <laughs> yeah. And so it could be that like once we're all gone, right? Like once the three of us here are all gone 100 years from now, you could have a new generation that went, what were those boneheads doing? <laughs> right? But yeah, I mean, at least in the history that we can that we have in front of us, that hasn't happened yet. You know, it's in Europe and think- Europe and Japan, you know, have not they've been trying to figure out how to incentivize population growth and it hasn't really worked so is this the end of empires somebody asked me that question you know is this like the end of the roman empire because countries like i have have a feeling you're going to say yes (laughs) yeah i mean the thing about it is so so will we cease will we fade away and will others rise up and the reality is and this is the research shows is the more educated a population gets, the wealthier population gets. It just happens. Birth rates just go down. So as other nations, as, as what we call third world nations now start to rise up, it's going to happen to them too. So, you know, where does that put the world? You know, there, my parents were talking about this the other day about we were raised in a world that everybody was going to die of starvation because we were going to overpopulate the world. And now you're telling me that the problem is we're not going to populate the world. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. but it was... At the time, people had never witnessed, you just said it earlier, people had never seen it before. They didn't know that when people reached these certain levels that they would stop having children. They couldn't predict that that would happen. So what Rob said may be true is that when you get to the wild extreme of the other side, maybe people go, well, wait a minute, we're going to have children and we're going to sustain that. Yeah, it's very Talebian, right? Like it is Black Swanee because it's not something like your models and your machines and your thinking can't go there. And, and so you just don't, you refuse to even see it. And even talking like this, I'm sure there are people who are like, you guys are insane. Like that's not, that can't be true. Overpopulation has been a reality for 50 years. And it's like, well, right. That mentality has been reality for 50 years. And it's created, there's an effect. I would say, if you look, if you actually want to know what economies are going to thrive over the next 50 years, you look to the places that are far above 2.1. And there's really only two places in the, in the world that have Africa being by, by far the highest. And so if you're, you're an investor, what places will thrive in the future? Africa, why, and people. That's actually quite fascinating to think about. Here's another thing. Yeah, historically, here's another way to frame it. We talk about like, we, you can talk about ancient history. Like you could say a word like the Babylonians or the Hittites or something like that. And there's debate, did the Hittites actually even exist? And, and you know, now historians will say, yeah, they did. But you say that word, and it sounds like I just said a word out of some mythology, right? That's like a mythic word. So here's what you should think right now. 200 years from now, somebody will say, did Italians exist? That, that was like a, that's a story, right? Why? Italy's birth, like 100 years from now, you might not actually meet people from Italy, right? And that's how this happens. Like in this moment, we're like, that's insane, I can go to Italy right now. My, you know, my my cousin. He's, you know, there are million, there are millions of them. I can go see yeah. all sorts of Italians. Yeah, but but you you play that a hundred years, two hundred years from now, you might say some but something like, "Have you ever met someone from Japan?" No, I've never met anybody from Japan. They they started they started a world war once and yeah. they wreaked havoc on the globe, but and now they no longer exist. Much like yeah, the I've never met yeah. anybody from Japan. No. Yeah. That's how that happens. It happens over 
like that. So in, in the world history, that's a blip. But to us, that sounds crazy. But that's a, a good way to think about it, because you can say the names of nations and peoples that have been before us and they're not they're literally gone. And I think right now, like that happens sometimes through plague or war or takeover or something like that. Our version of that is just like, yeah, you're just gone. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been a remarkably cheery conversation with you guys. I do want to thank both of you for your work on this report. It's very challenging in the hurly-burly of our politics. These kinds of issues don't get the kind of attention that they need. It's just been very helpful to kind of pull back and really look at this big picture and then to speculate, I think, on what the future might be. And I think that that's kind of where we need to leave this, which is it's an aspect of the uncertain world that we live in. These primary drivers are going to change that world, and we can't really tell for sure exactly how, but we know we've got some problems. Anyway, thank you so much. I really appreciate the extra time that you gave me today and look forward to continuing this conversation in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.